Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking editor Tom McKenna and executive art director Mike Makovich. Hey, guys. Uh, as always, folks, spread the word about this podcast to your fellow woodworkers. Head over to our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a five-star rating. And you can also catch us at iHeartRadio. Uh, so, um, let's get things started. I've thought that the first question for this week uh, would make kind of a good overall segue topic. We always do a segue topic at the top of the show. And I got this question from a guy named Nick. Um, and uh, Nick wrote, a few podcasts ago, you briefly mentioned Japanese woodworkers holding work with their feet. And that got me thinking. My family and I are about to downsize from a four-bedroom house to a two-bedroom apartment while I pursue my master's degree. I've been thinking a lot about how to woodwork in a small space, and I'm curious about the way Japanese woodworkers approach their craft versus how Western woodworkers typically work. Since the Japanese don't use vices and Western-style benches, how do they hold their work? Where Western woodworkers use vices, bench dogs, and holdfasts to secure their work, what would a Japanese woodworker use to hold their work in various orientations? How many times can I say hold work in this question? Also, how do their benches differ from Western ones? I guess what I'm getting at is how does their approach to securing work, there it is again, differ from Western approaches? I'm pulling your leg, Nick. Um, anyhow, uh, so, yeah, what's, uh, what's the deal? I have my own insights here. I'll get into them in a minute. But um, what's the predominant uh, theme here? Well, probably has something to do with the, uh, the way that Japanese tools work. Pulling, you know, saws cut on the pull stroke and hand planes are often pulled toward you. But uh, Mike had said earlier, um, talking about, you know, how Japanese, Japanese woodworkers are really based in architectural woodworking and that kind of feeds their way of working, not having a, a true workbench to bring with them to the job site. Yeah, I've always thought of that um, sort of, you know, if you're doing architectural woodworking and millwork and stuff, you're, you're in essence carrying your workshop to the job site with you. And a lot of times, like the Japanese workbench, isn't it just like a like a six by six beam or something beam, like yeah. that? On a couple of like big sawhorses. Yes. Pretty much. Yeah. So I mean, I'm speaking from tremendous ignorance on this subject, but back to the way the tools work, like a Japanese saw, for instance, works on the pull stroke. And I always say that. Um, you know, Western saws, when you're like, when we're cutting a dovetail on the board, is supported vertically in the vise. And a traditional saw that we're using, it cuts on the push stroke. So all the, the little swarf and sawdust gets pushed to the rear of the board, opposite from the way we're facing, so we can follow a line really well. Mm. And on a Japanese saw, it works on the pull stroke, and you're actually pulling that swarf um, and the sawdust towards you, and it tends That's to a great a, word. A, a swarf. Isn't it awesome? Um, and it tends to obscure your line a little bit. So is that saw inferior? No, because we're kind of using the saw in the way it was not intended to be used right. in that um, you take this board, instead of clamping it vertically in a vise, you lay it down horizontally on a workbench, and you pull the saw down. Now the workbench is acting as your tool stop. Yeah. Um, so I think it has a lot to do with... Um, you know, the way uh, Japanese tools are meant to be used are, you know, in context with, you know, the way they're being used in terms of uh, the w how you're securing the workpiece against the force of the tool that's doing the cutting. Yeah. And when he talked about when Nick mentioned holding, holding the work with your feet, all of that inertia is working toward yourself. And so your feet, in essence, become bench dogs. 
What are you doing with your feet? What what were we referring to? Well, I you know I was actually going to bring it back to um, anyone anybody who's seen the latest video workshop with Andrew Hunter um, has probably noticed a few things uh, in that series. Um, he likes Japanese. Yeah, yeah he he works with Japanese hand tools. He has a very um, Spartan shop, and so I, I thought we'd get into this from the viewpoint of folks who don't have much shop space at all. Um, you know, they, they don't have the room for a, a you know a joint or a plane or a bandsaw, a table saw. Um, that's the kind of guy Andrew Hunter is. Um, you know, even down to wearing little Japanese slippers too. I mean, he's like takes it all the whole way, man. Cool. <laughs> but um, but a couple of things that he does. So first of all, uh, if he's ripping, if he's doing a long rip on a board, um, he'll usually place the board uh, down on the floor on a couple of very very low. There are these traditional. Uh, short, I don't recall the technical term for these, but they're basically short sawhorses. They sit off the ground maybe a foot. Um, mm-hmm. He lays them down there. He's got a line drawn out that he wants to rip to and uh, or rip right next to. And he makes his rip from a standing position with you know one foot on the floor and then one foot up on the board to hold it down on these horses. And he goes along sawing, and then he shoots that edge of the board right to his pencil line to clean up that edge after the, you know, after the rip cut by hand. Um, Another thing, to your point about sawing down, basically with a piece resting on the bench and then sawing down, you'll see this um, in the latest, I think it's episode two, which is the latest uh, episode of the video workshop series. He's cutting the curved profiles on the side of a pine hutch, and he's using a bow saw, and he's letting gravity work for him. So he's got this, um, this side of this cabinet side, which is just a long rectangle, you know, clamped down on the bench, and he's got his bow saw, and he's going along, and because he's... Uh, working in that fashion, in that orientation, the bow saw is just doing all the work with gravity. You know, it, it, it falls down, yeah. it makes the cut on the on the downstroke. Right. Um, so they kind of use gravity and physics to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as you said, you can see he's got a he's got one version of a traditional Japanese bench that he uses in his uh, shop. Um, so you can get an idea of how that works in the video series. He, but but what really struck me was he. Like he doesn't have a traditional workshop set up yet because Andrew is actually currently redoing an old farmhouse, so his shop is actually in his what's going to be his living room, <laughs> and, and it's got it's really cool. It's got lots of window light and it's got these old you know kind of beat up pine um, you know pine floors that are really nice and romantic, and um, he literally has a few saws um, hanging off of pegs on the wall. You know, a f- like four Japanese style hand planes on a shelf. A bow saw and, you know, I mean, his little bench, a couple of those low sawhorses I spoke about, and that's it. Wow. That's, and he he's, he's builds, living the dream. He's living the dream. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, that's all he needs. And Maybe he, we should yeah. do an article on converting your living room to a shop. Do you think that would fly? Didn't we do that with Chris Gochner working in an apartment? Did we? <laughs> this is before <laughs> no. my time? No. Chris, Chris had temporarily taken up residence in Washington, D.C. while his wife was on assignment there. And um, we did one project with him. Really? Was down there, and it was in an apartment. I think it was, I think it, I believe it was one of his kids' bedrooms that he had set up oh. a workbench in. No way. It was pretty funny. Well, so there are, I mean, I guess the point is that there are ways to do this work. Now, granted, Andrew's working in pine. It's a lot easier to to work. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's, I, I think it's doable working in a little space with just hand tools. I think a lot of this stuff is perfectly doable if you have the wherewithal to sit down and learn how to, for example, mill lumber by hand um 
I'm, you know, there's a learning curve. Sure. And there's more time involved. Yeah. But, I mean, you could even do that with Western-style yeah. hand planes. You don't have to focus on Japanese-style right. hand planes. Right. It's the same thing. It's just the reverse of directions, as you yeah. pointed out earlier, Tom. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, um, Nick, if you can watch the Andrew Hunter um, video workshop series, I think that would really go a long way in giving you some ideas. Um, the first... Uh, the intro episode and the first episode are free. So even if you don't have a um, an online membership, you can still catch a bit of it and get some ideas uh, out of there. Um, but I, I say it's totally doable. Yeah. If you have a room in an apartment, I think it's doable for smaller projects, you know? Yeah. Um, and also, you won't have machine noise if you go by hand. That's true. And not all the no, dust and shavings, but that's right. not too bad. Yeah. Maybe our buddy Wilbur Pan, um, you can uh, write in and, and let us know how far off the tracks we've gone, Wilbur, <laughs> <laughs> in our characterization of, of working with Japanese hand tools. Uh, hold on. Hold on. I have Wilbur on, on right now on yes. line two. Hold on. That's his only response. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyhow, that's, I don't know, for what it's worth, um, I was I was quite um, taken aback in a good way by the way Andrew works, it was a pl- it was really nice. I, I shot a couple of um, my colleague Lisa shot the video workshop series with him, but I shot a couple of standalone videos with him, and it was a lot of fun watching him work. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, uh, so let's head into our next question. This comes from William, and William writes, "Hey guys, I've been listening to your podcast for about a year now, and so far I've only once heard mention of using hard wax oil as a finish. I've used Osmo Poly X oil." quite a bit for a previous job, and I quite like it. Recently, I was encouraged by the guy at the finishing store, that's a technical term, to try Fiddy's, am I pronouncing this right? Because I've never used this stuff. Fiddy's hard, wa- hard sure. wax oil? Fide? Fide. I, don't, I have no idea what this stuff is, but F-I-D-D-E-S. we get the idea. F-I-D-D-E-S. Right. Yeah. It's a bit cheaper than Osmo with a comparable benefit, uh, a durable, natural finish formulated for flooring but useful for furniture that's foolproof to apply and quick to dry, and that can be applied in a relatively dusty shop. Why would it be able to be applied in a relatively dusty shop? I wonder what that... Well, it's a wipe-on, wipe-off finish, so it doesn't stay wet for a long time, okay. so you're just not going to accumulate any dust into dust the finish. Dust yeah. yep. All right. So um, William has been planning to use the this new hard wax oil to finish a piece of walnut furniture for a client, but my client would like a uniform color in the walnut, so I'll need to use a dye to darken the sapwood. But before I do this, I wonder how well the hard wax oil will bond to the wood because it's a penetrating finish, um, if there's another product underneath it. The forums I've read about dyeing the sapwood usually call for a top coat like lacquer or shellac. They don't mention a penetrating finish, however, perhaps because it's obviously the wrong choice. I'm just not sure. So what's the deal? Can he use uh, a stain to even out the color of sapwood beneath this sort of penetrating oil? Yeah, I mean, this. so this finish is basically an oil-wax blend. Um, there's a few on the market. You can certainly make them yourself by melting beeswax into linseed oil, which was a, a traditional finish. I know Tried and True offers a beeswax linseed oil finish as well. Um, these types of finishes, they're basically an in-the-wood finish. Uh, they're easy to apply, wipe on, wipe off. They'll take a long time to cure depending on the heat and humidity. Um, they'll give you a very low luster, uh, nice-to-the-touch finish. Not a tremendous amount of pr- pr- protection. Uh, certainly, 
enough for regular furniture uses. I'm not sure I would want that as a dining table top yeah. finish. Yeah. But um, and the cool thing is they're really easy to renew. You just you know maybe steel wool the surface, lightly sand it with fine sandpaper, put another coat on. You can do that as often as you want. Um, it is an oil based finish. I think there's a couple um, things you can do about your sapwood. I use sort of an, an oil varnish. Uh, finish for years. And what I would do, because it's an oil-based finish, I would go ahead and apply finish to the whole piece. And then if I had any little slivers of sapwood I wanted to hide, I would go ahead and use my finish and mix in some of that artist uh, pigments, oh, yeah. the oil oh, yeah. pigments sure. in the tubes, uh, mix it up a little bit. And because the wood is already sealed, you could wipe it on, check out your color. If you don't like it, you can pretty much wipe it off or even use a little mineral spirits and get it mostly all the way off. Yeah. This way you can control your color without really being locked into something that you can't get back in, get yeah. back out of the wood. So I might try it with something like this. Either um, do what you're recommending, go with a stain, and the the finish probably, I can't imagine it's going to have a problem uh, adhering to any sort of stain. The keys do a sample board first and yeah. make Which sure he, the color is right. mentioned doing. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the other thing on a sample board, go ahead and coat it with this finish and then try mixing this with some oil pigments to see if uh, that same uh, sort of technique might work for you as well. Where do you get those oil pigments from? Uh, any art supply store, sure. I was going to uh, – I had a different take on this. I was going to recommend Sap Extract, um, which is manufactured by the Bonnier Corporation. Um, and that just, you just paint it on, it's all, it's all over. It's done, taken care of. Just sap extract. Sap be I gone. Like sap be gone. <laughs> <laughs> sap off. Available at Home Depot. That's right. That's right, baby. Not a sponsor. In the cleanser aisle. <laughs> Sapwood's not no, that's necessarily in the BS aisle. a bad thing. If you no. use uh, anything used with intent, I think can be a wonderful thing. It's just sucky when that sapwood doesn't show up until you, after the, you put that first coat of finish on and all of a sudden you got that nice square yeah. leg with that little corner sapwood on there. The big thing about walnut, um, and I don't know if most folks who listen to this podcast are aware of it or not, is the whole steaming um, thing. So, you know, most walnut that you buy at a hardwood dealer nowadays has been steamed to even the color. Sure. Um, more yield out of the walnut. Yeah. More yield, right? But that results in this sort of grayish tint yeah. uh, to the walnut. And I, I first, the first time I saw unsteamed walnut was with Tim Rousseau. I was doing a project with Tim, and he uses exclusively unsteamed stuff. And the colors are striking. I mean, there's so many more hues of purple and yeah. brown, and I mean, it's yeah. gorgeous. Like, why do you steam this stuff? No, no. Yeah, you lose a lot of depth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyhow, uh, all right. Fair enough. Uh, so I say we head into our first segment of the day. And there's much rejoicing. Much rejoicing. This is going, well, this is going to be, there might not be rejoicing after this segment. It's going to be tool bombs. Now, let me, let me explain uh, what tool bombs are. So... Imagine uh, maybe you were at a flea market, you bought that 150-year-old esoteric uh, router plane that you thought, like, yes, this is what the old masters used. I'm, I will get so much use out of this. You bought it, you spent 50 bucks on it. It has sat in a drawer in your workshop for the past 17 years, collecting dust, um, total bomb. It may not have been, a, it was not necessarily that it was a poorly made tool. It was just like, what on earth am I going to do with this thing? Uh, the other category of tool bomb is maybe you bought a kitschy little gizmo um, the kind of thing that you would expect Ron Popeil to be selling on the, the home shopping network at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it absolutely 
just can't do anything. It is a hunk of junk. Uh, so two categories here, um, and and there and this is this is broad. So th- there might be other categories mixed in here as well. So I'm gonna go, Tom. You are. Um, this is only your what second or third podcast with us? I believe it's number two. Number two. I'm gonna give the mic to you first, Mike or Tom. You have the floor. Yeehaw. Well, my my uh, my my tool bomb kind of falls between what Ed was talking about. Um, years ago, I had purchased a. Uh, a table saw tenoning jig, thinking you know it was going to be the uh, the bee's knees to my tenoning issues, and um, turns out it wasn't as easy as it was advertised, and so I had a lot of trouble getting it set up um, and using it, and I found it was taking me a lot more time to cut my tenons than it than it was taking me before when I used to use a dado set, and uh, I cut. I did one project with it, a table project, put it back in the box, and it hasn't come out since. <laughs> is this a, I mean, is it a, what you would categorize as a, a well-manufactured tanning jig or like a $20 special? It wasn't a $20 special. I bought it at a, at a tag sale, but okay. um, it was a, uh, a reputable company. It was, okay. This and is the cast iron kind. Yes. It's just, it goes right into the miter slots. slots. It's got the handle yep. in a vertical face where you somehow clamp the stock vertically. Yep. What was the problem with that? I I had troubles. My biggest problem was getting it adjusted and getting it set up. And I found it very fussy, and I could never figure out. Um, I was always cutting the tenons in the wrong spot. And a part of it was just getting frustrated with trying to dial it in, whereas I didn't have that trouble before when I was using a dado blade. So set up, I, setup's easier set with up, your old method. Right. And it was also another issue that I had. Um, and this was part of the learning curve when I first started using it, was I would get the, uh, the little offcuts would shoot back at me. <laughs> <laughs> nice bonus. <laughs> so, um, and you also have to clamp in a, a backer block, which I found yeah. out after the fact. Right. But, uh, you know, I think I used it maybe, maybe I used it twice and then I put it back in the box and then I, I just found a better way. You know who's got a cool tanning technique? This is Garrett. So Garrett Hack has a series of uh, brass, circular brass shims, and he'll put, he'll use two flat top rip blades, and then he'll, you know, he'll put one on the, um, he'll mount one in his saw, and then he'll attach, he'll put on enough of these little shims to account for the thickness of the tenon that he wants. Right. And then he puts the second blade on, tightens it all down, and he cuts both cheeks in one pass, hmm. which is, oh, it's really neat. Yeah. He, he yeah. did that in the little, um, he calls it the spinner table. I think it's uh, it was a video workshop we did yep. a long time ago. Elegant side table from fur and cherry, something like that. Um, it's a neat little. I always thought of doing that. But, he, but the one thing that I noticed he said in that video series was that before he found these brass shims, he made wood ones. Mm-hmm. And I always wondered what would like what would happen if your wood shim like busted mid cut. You know, the, the thing that's keeping those two blades away from it's one all, another? It's all clamped well, yeah. in place. It right? is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's not going, going it's anywhere. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. I just wondered. It's like, ooh. Eesh. an interesting video. Yeah. <laughs> Slow yeah, I mean, motion. I, so the on something like that, especially with the twin blades, the thing is that you can cut your cheeks really accurately. Yeah. But then yeah. you still have to get rid of that waist. So it's still a, a second table saw cut. Correct. Flat. To shut, cut, yeah, the to shoulders, cut the shoulder, probably remove the waist, and then you still have to do the tenon ends, and that's a whole thing. So, the upside is you get really, really accurate tenon cheeks, and the downside is it's like three operations instead of one. You'd yeah. mentioned the dado blade, 
data yeah. blade flat, boom, slide it over, mm -hmm. hit the shoulder, and, and it's all done. The problem with the data blade, I find what I'm teaching, because I do that at home, it's a data blade. I think yeah. it's the most efficient, but I teach um, quite a bit. And over at uh, Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking, Bob Van Dyke, every time um, I want to do the data blade, he just like, shakes his head and says, oh, don't do the dado <laughs> blade. Um, I do find that uh, students, a lot of times, they have a hard time keeping the stock flat on the table saw as you're cutting tenons mm -hmm. with a dado blade. Yeah. So if you're getting uneven results, take a second pass because that wide cut that the blade is making um, is really wants to lift that workpiece up off the table as you're making a cut. And if you do that, you end up with really fat tenons in a, in a lot of ways. So... Um, I still do it a lot at home, but, but I certainly see. Really, you can't. Yeah. You, you're unable to teach your students to just hold down the workpiece as they can't um, quite. I just can't hold my hand and apply pressure enough. To, it's oh. it's a certain technique <laughs> Again, where pulling legs. you take the stuff for granted if you've done it a yeah. lot, but yeah. coming into it first sure. time. Um, well, I've actually changed my my method since then. I don't even use the dado blade anymore. I, I made a trestle table a couple years ago, and the um, my table saw wasn't big enough. To, to cut the tenons mm -hmm. that way. Um, so I used, uh, I cut the shoulders on the table saw and I used a bandsaw to cut the cheeks. The cheeks. Yeah. That's kind of what I've started doing for all the other tenons I've made because it's easier than I, I can dial it in and clean it up with, uh, with hand planes. See, now here's what I do. Y'all want to know what I do? I do. I know you do. <laughs> I'm waiting. Uh, I have eschewed the dado set for um, a f you know, set of finger joint blades, box joint blades, because they cut so dead flat on the cheeks, you don't get the little ridges. That's true. They do yes, you set. don't get those because they don't There's, have the little scoring teeth. They don't have the, the scoring outside. teeth, so they're yes. really clean cuts. Yeah. I love it. And they, they actually you know, cut pretty well across the grain as well, which yeah. you think they wouldn't do quite as good a job. And the other one that I've been known to do is if I'm in a rush and I'm just doing like a, I don't know, like a couple of tenons, you know, I don't want to do all this crazy setup. I just do the speed tending technique. Right, which is? Uh, you Go ahead. Go ahead. You can describe it better than I can. Mike. Basically, you're Hold cutting on. the shoulder. Yeah. You've got your miter gauge set up in this regular blade. And you typically, I like to use my rip fence yeah. to establish the shoulder cut. Yeah. And then you just sort of, well, I like to then, after I cut the shoulder cut, I remove most of the waste really quickly on the bandsaw, leaving maybe a sixteenth of an inch to remove. Um, right. Then go back to the right. table saw. A lot of people, they just stay at the table saw like Chris Bexford, and you just zip that zip workpiece back and forth across the blade as you feed into so the So you're, you're sl basically sliding the um, so the workpiece, the edge of the workpiece goes up against your miter gauge fence, and you're, sl you're zipping bit by bit. Um, you're, you're, imagine uh, it's a small table rail, and you're going from left to right, sliding it along the miter gauge fence towards the rip fence, and then bump the rip fence towards the blade, I don't know, a fraction of an inch, and then do the same procedure, and you just nibble, 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 nibble. Yeah. The only thing you have to be careful with is that, you, you know, you've got a good grip on the, yep. the workpiece so your hand doesn't, if you're sweaty or something, you don't want to slip and go towards the blade. Um, so that, that's the only caveat, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that's well, a good little method. Yeah. Th there, there are so many methods of cutting tenons. I mean, I've been to a lot of shops for guys. I must have seen at least five or six different ways over the years of guys cutting tenants in different ways. It's kind of cool. Well, um, so you ha your tool bomb is a tenning jig. Um, I'll go next, and then I'll, uh, I'll leave it up to Mike. So mine concerns my new shop. I've, I've spoken about it briefly before. My wife and I bought a house in, uh, last summer, and luckily it had a, um, an old workshop in the basement. 
So it was already outfitted with a ton, and I mean a ton, of shelves uh, and drawers, which initially I was like, this is awesome, man. I must have, there's probably, there's one wall that has a bank of like 16 drawers in it, and then there's another long wall that has probably another 12. And when I saw that bank of 16 drawers just all on one wall, I cleaned them all up, you know, and I repainted them. They're working beautifully and everything. And now I realize it's like, first of all, I, I don't have enough different categories of things to put in separate drawers to fill 16. Well, not, no, it's not 16. Actually, it's like 28 drawers. <laughs> and it's like finding stuff. Like, even if you label everything, yes. you've got to, like, read all the labels on every drawer till you find, like, oh, it's a router bits. Where's the router bit? Tra- router bits. There it is. And it's, it's crazy. It is so much easier to have things on shelves, um, mm. you know, it, openly accessible where you can see yeah. where things are. Um, so that's my – I don't mean to – look a gift horse in the mouth. I, I'm still happy that I have all this storage, but it's kind of a pain. Mm. Not what I expected. A little bit of a minor workshop-related tool bomb. Wow, because well, I'm a fan of the multi-drawer thing But like don't that. you like get frustrated sometimes? Like, oh, I just want a straight-cutting bit, and I can't... Which drawer is it? Oh. See, I, I don't have any drawers. You're Maybe. not wearing... Dra- I mean, oh, oh, I, have two, I have two drawers. <laughs> I mean, but uh, yeah, I don't have any... I don't have any shop drawers in my in my in my workshop except for one cabinet that has a couple drawers and uh, I find uh, I wish I had more drawers Ed so I well I think there's a sweet spot in between too few and too many exactly I mean I 28 drawers that's a lot of drawers and a lot of them are really big so it's like and and I even got rid of some I had these like two when we bought the house I went in the basement and there were these two enormous um, drawer units that were each each of them was about four feet wide and about four feet tall, imagine a couple of squares, and then like three feet deep. And each had two drawers, two immense drawers. Wow. Like, what was the guy building down here? Right. And then he had like separate circuits for his planer and his jointer, and they were like old-fashioned circuits where you pulled a lever to trip the circuit. Nice. I was like, what? This is crazy. None of it was hooked up anymore. Was it knob and tube <laughs> wiring, too? I did have knob and tube wiring in the house, yeah. I had to, I got rid of it all. Not that well, there's if, really if, nothing wrong with it. If but If you subdivide the drawers like Mike is showing us. That's what I'm doing with the drawers that I kept. I am subdividing. Well, I don't know. I'm a fan of the drawers. You know what I like the big drawers for? I like your drawers. Thank you. Uh, It sounds, (laughs) it doesn't, uh, I don't know if someone else did this. This isn't my idea, but it works really well. For the big drawers, I keep all my power tools in drawers, which sounds Mm -hmm. weird. You think a power tool, it needs to be up on a shelf, a router, or whatever. Nah, it's, it's, it's amazing how many power tools you can fit in single big drawer. You gotta have pretty strong drawers durable drawers strongest drawers ever <laughs> i mean <laughs> well no you get a lot of weight in the drawers and you don't want to you know you know you don't want to have to wear suspenders that's I mean, right well yes you don't want to break the drawer bottom you don't want to break the bottom i mean i could have bottom problems and you know <laughs> mike is mike's on the floor <laughs> right now <laughs> all right anyhow no no bringing it back to reality so uh let's clean it up boys so, my so fault I, I wish i had more drawers you wish you had fewer i wish i had fewer uh mike tool bomb no, unless I want to bring up my 1972 Volkswagen van, which broke my heart and ate my entire savings from my summer spent sweeping floors in a machine shop when I was 17 years old. I'd rather not go there. 1974 van? 72 Volkswagen van. Did it have a pop-up pop-top or a soft top? Uh, It was a camper van without the pop-up. It was sweet. Man, I was going to hit the road in that thing, but it never really got on the road. (laughs) 
Yeah, everybody oh. I knew told me, don't get it, Mike. It's a bad move. I said, I'm going to prove you all wrong, and it just broke my spirit. I've been driving Toyotas ever since. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's get back to questions. We have uh, one from Marsh, and uh, he writes, regarding cherry blotching prevention, have you heard about using wipe-on urethane gel top coat under a stain instead of a traditional shellac wash? Um, so we all know that, uh, you know, for most of us, if we put a clear coat, a clear finish on cherry, we often start by giving it a coat of de-waxed shellac in order to prevent the blotchiness that is inherent yes. in cherry. So now this fellow is talking about potentially using a stain, also prone to blotching on sure. cherry. Cause it, like, it's almost like it absorbs more in some areas yep. than others. Yep. Um, so how do you even it out, even out the absorption of the stain? And he's talking about using a urethane gel top coat beneath his stain um, instead of a traditional shellac wash. So what do you guys think? What's the deal here? My, my first question is why? Why shellac? not just use shellac? shellac? Yeah, shellac, I mean, I've used it a lot. Tried and true, right? Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't mean the product. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've taken to using shellac as a first coat almost, you know, in the past couple of pieces I've built. I just started using it as general practice. Um, then what do you follow up with? I use motor oil. I, <laughs> I use wipe on poly. Yeah, yeah. I mean that any sort of um, any first coat of finish that you put on is in essence going to seal the wood. Mm-hmm. So you know we often use the term sanding sealer. Basically, any any coat of finish is going to act like a, a sanding sealer. And under clear coats like you're talking about, and I've used that on occasion with shellac, uh, wipe on a thin coat of shellac, sand it down. It feels like there's it's just bare wood. But then when you start to apply the clear coat on top. It builds up a lot faster. You don't have the blotching. Um, same goes for coloring as well. You can do a wash coat of shellac, sand it down before you apply a coat of stain or dye, and it reduces the amount of absorption, so you get a more even color and tone. Um, and so, Marsh, I don't know, it sounds like you've tried this um, wipe-on poly clear top coat uh, stuff before, um, and... Uh, or maybe you've heard someone else do it. Basically, it's the same theory. You're going to wipe it on. I, I would wipe on a thin coat. I would sand it smooth. Um, and then go ahead and apply your, your color on top. I have a feeling that would work Probably. just fine. Again, but test experiment. Yes. Experiment, yeah. right. Right. And then when you're applying, so we're basically applying color over a partially finished surface. And if you were to build up the finish all the way before you apply to stain, that's typically re- uh, referred to as a glaze. And in that case, you have a lot more control because you can really dial in the color. If you don't like it, you can yeah, wipe, wipe the whole off. thing off and, and try again. But we're talking about somewhere, something in between. Um, uh, again, try it on a sample board. If it looks good, go for it um, and uh, let us know how it works out for you. All right. Yeah. Uh, now we've got a f- another question from our friend Diami. Uh, regular listeners will know that I got my, um, my jointer from Diami. Um, before we get to his question, Mike, can you take a look? What's in that box behind you? Did he send me the planer? I was. It is in there. It's in there. Okay, we can answer this question then. Thank you, Diami. Um, kidding. Uh, I have a Dust Boy Tuesday. I bought the jointer. I've said that before. I have a Dust Boy two-stage dust collector. While my ultimate plan is to permanently install it in one location and connect it with rigid six-inch duct, for now I'll be moving it around and connecting it to one tool at a time. Since it has a six-inch intake. I had first planned to use 6-inch flex hose and reduce it to 4 inches at the tool. I believe that will give me the most airflow. I'm writing because I've been disappointed by the 6-inch hose and fitting availability I've found. 
After hearing Asa talk of his affection for the Rockler Dustrite system, which is only available in 4-inch, I was wondering if that would be a better way to go. If I understand correctly, using 4-inch duct instead of 6 inches will be trading air volume for air velocity. When connecting to one tool at a time, will the duct size matter much? Will I give up too much performance if I go 4-inch? So I'm going to summarize here. Um, he's kind of interested in this dust right system, which is a pretty cool system. Um, if you move your hoses or, you know, connect your hoses to various tools, you know, moving the connections from time to time. It's sort of a yeah. quick release quick fitting. Release. Slip on, slip off yep. kind of a thing. And they even have a little, um, I was going to mention for Diami, they have a, a little vacuum attachment. Yep. So you can just attach that to your dust collector and yep. vacuum your shop up. It's pretty cool. So yeah. what do we think about trading 6-inch for 4-inch? Well, first uh, off, Diami, where did you get your awesome Dust Boy collector? Do you know yeah. what these things are? They're basically, it's like a big trash can <laughs> with a dust collector <laughs> on top. And they oh, used hello. to be advertised in um, fine woodworking. If you look at the back issues, you'll yeah. find these things. And I always thought they were really cool. And when I went to um, set up a dust collector, I'd always thought they were kind of neat looking. But I have a feeling they they haven't been manufactured in ages. In the photo that he sent, it didn't have a dust bag on it. Yeah, put a dust bag on there, I think, is, right? Is, I Maybe not. I don't know. I, it, there was the mo- I didn't see where the dust bag could go. There was the motor up on the top. I don't know. Unless I was looking at it upside down, which is possible. But I've always thought instead of a dust bag, you just have an extra length of hose and just like shoot it out shoot the it window. Shoot it out the window. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I do. Um, no, I don't. So, Diami, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the general rule of thumb in terms of hose diameters or duct diameters. The larger uh, the duct diameter for as long as possible before you get to the machine, the more efficient your system is going to be. And your other assumption is like, yeah, so what? Do I really need that much? Um, if you have a pretty powerful collector and you have a short run of hose right next to a machine, my guess is four inch is probably going to yeah, work for you. I think so. I agree. I, I, I mean, most machines are outfitted with four inch ports. Um, most home shops have four inch hoses. It shouldn't be a big deal. Yeah. Give it, give it a try. I don't think it's a big investment to hook up a, a fitting on your dust collector to fit a four-inch hose and hook it up to one he of needs the a reducer. And, that's all. Right. give it a try. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he has a small shop, so you're not, you're not talking about long runs. So uh, it's interesting. This got me thinking, one of the issues that I'm having in my shop is that I have, um, you know, on one end of the shop is the table saw, and then over on the other end are the joiner and planer, the biggest dust hogs in the shop. So I am looking into sourcing a used dust collector that I'm thinking I could use on the jointer and planer. Um, but then that leaves, you know, I don't want to be going back and forth to the table saw all the time. Right. You know, you're using it so often, right? So I was thinking, well, if I, if I have a, you know, conventional dust collector attached to the milling machinery, what if I were to get one of those, um, you know, various manufacturers sell these small dust collectors that you kind of attach to the wall and mm-hmm. it just has a small bag. Yep. It's good for one machine and that's it. And that's what I was thinking of doing for the table saw. It just has its own little dust collector. Um, I'm not doing production work. So, I mean, if I were in a production environment, I'd be filling up that bag like three times a day. Right. But not me. Um, So that seems like I might, you know, uh, does that seem, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, my dust collection system is a whole sort of Frankenstein. Yeah, mine is too. I've got hoses everywhere. It's kind of a nightmare. Do you have a single collector that you're trying to capture everything with? I do, and I have a a separator that's before the dust collector. So I have... You know, lengths of hose that go from, you know, I go, I hook up machine to machine. If I switch machines, I 
have to pull the hose off and okay. hook it up. Um, so I've got that whole length of hose all over my shop, and then I have the separator, and then another hose that goes from the separator to the dust collector. So it's a little bit inconvenient, but it's it's what I have, so I, I deal with it. Now, yeah. what if you had in a one and a half? So the, the, like for example, the collector I'm looking at is one and a half horse. It's not a big collector. If you had that, it, and it's got the two ports, so you can have one going to the joint yep. and one going to the planer. Right. Now, what if in that instance, you had one port dedicated to the table saw, the other port switches between joiner planer, because you're right there, it's right. easy. The only caveat is, the run is between 12 and 15 feet That's to the that's, table saw. That's too long. Is that that's, pushing yeah. it? That's pushing, that's pushing it. it a lot, I, I think. I have a, a smaller I collector like that, and I have it situated between my planer, Mm-hmm. And my table saw. So that only picks up two machines. My joiner just goes into a box at the outfeed because it doesn't really throw stuff in the air. The chips are pretty heavy. They just go down into a box and empty the box. That's no big deal. You never had a problem yeah. with that? Nope. No big deal? Nope. That's it, something to think about. Yeah. And then kind of to your point, my bandsaw, I have a separate mm. little tiny sort of shop back style collector yeah. that collects from yeah. there. And then I have a shop vac that collects to my chop saw that yeah. I wheel over to my spindle. So many freaking vacuums have, you need yeah. in a shop. Yeah. I have a, uh, I have a, I have a, a relatively small band, you know, 14 inch band saw and it has a vac, vacuum size yeah. port, two and a half it's inches. It's like a half so. inch diameter yeah. vacuum port on yeah. that. So, you know, my, my, it's funny, my, yeah. my planer so how doesn't do have a dust port. So I, I, plane, <laughs> I plane in my garden. Really? I bring, I bring my, I bring my. This is embarrassing, but uh, I bought the planer used. Tom, and I, Tom, and I Tom. didn't. I wasn't thinking <laughs> of dust collection when I bought it, and so when I first get, started thinking about working at home in yeah. my basement, I realized, oh, you know, I need a, I need to put a dust collector on this thing, and I went to fi- look at the port, and there was no port on it, so. And wow. Instead of buying a new planer, I built a, uh, a manufactured car in the with, Nixon with, administration. <laughs> exactly. Well, what kind of planer do you have? It's a Grizzly. Okay, because I have an old Delta that didn't come with one yeah, either, and I just weird. had to get a plastic one and duct tape it on, That's, on the yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I was thinking of making one, wow. but I, I, I took a different approach from Mike. I put like four by four size tires on a on my planer cart, and I wheel it outside. Oh, and you I actually plane. literally plane outside? I do, outside. I plane outside. That's I, awesome. Yeah, what else are you I shoot do? it right into my garden. Wow. <laughs> See, now I was thinking, here's another idea for the miter saw, because I already have one little uh, shop vac, and I was like, I don't want to spend another 100 bucks on another shop vac, and I was thinking... They, I only use my miter saw for rough cutting, you know, lumber to length. That's it. That's right. really all I do with it, right? So I was thinking, why not just, they sell these things at Home Depot, not a sponsor, uh, <laughs> that it's basically a vacuum motor that attaches to the top of a five-gallon bucket. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking, like, that's all I need. It takes, a you know, whatever it is, a two-inch hose or three-inch right. hose, whatever size it is. Um, and that's, it's like $30. It's like, well, why don't I just do that and get one of those power actuated plugs mm-hmm. yeah. so every time i pull the trigger it just cranks on and it's done you know if all you're doing is rough cutting to length does that work i haven't i haven't bought it yet i was th- okay. i was wondering like is it really a total piece of junk or is it you know mm-hmm. suitable alternative i don't know you know we'll see or you can do it in your garden or i can do it in my garden <laughs> hey i got bilco steps i can easily <laughs> i don't have you know my my uh chop saw i don't have any dust collection on it but i i do want to do something but I've been trying to come up with sort of a shield type thing that it sounds like what you're talking about, um, where it just it's it catches the dust and it'll fall down, and then I have some sort of a collector hooked up beneath to to grab it. But I haven't fully realized my system yet. Yeah, I mean, chop saws are notoriously difficult yeah. to collect dust from, 
But I really found that actually just hooking up a, a, my shop back to that little dust port, the port, it actually does a really good job. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a little bit of dust around there, but not, you know, it's certainly more, you know, I had that bag stuck on there. Oh, um, yeah, no, no. You know, yeah, yeah, and no, it no. like fills up in a minute and that just does nothing. Um, but I found that actually a shop back is, unless you're really, you know, crazy about dust and you want to collect, collect everything, it actually does a good job of getting, I don't know, 80 or 90% of <laughs> just the big mess that yeah. that chop saw normally makes. So. Um, it's worth it for me to hit that vacuum cleaner button every time I turn it on. Right on. Yeah. Well, let's uh, head into our next segment, shall we? And that's going to be all-time favorite technique of all time, where we wax poetic on our most beloved, cherished techniques. Um, I'm going to, uh, let's see, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, Mike. All right. Oh, Let me go you. with you first. Well, Mine uh, relates to yours slightly. So, so uh, speaking of teaching at Connecticut Valley with Bob Van Dyke, who runs the school, uh, this is a technique he showed me that he learned from Will Neptune, who is like one of those genius mad scientists of woodworking. He taught at North Bennett for a long time and is a fantastic furniture maker and teacher. Great name. That's all I care yes. about. And he's exactly. written wonderful articles for us if you ever want to look him up. Um, but here's, it's a technique for removing the waste, um, between your pins when you're dovetailing down to your baseline. And I was, uh, we were, I was teaching a class on making this cool little entry table and it had a dovetail drawer box. So we were cutting dovetails, basically a shallow dovetail case that's about 10 inches wide, whole lot of baseline to clean up. So this case comes together square. And the drawers fit nice and mm. a lot of students to work through this. So anyway, Will's idea is you go ahead and, and cut your tails like you cut your tails, scribe them, cut your pins the way you cut your pins. And however you remove the waist to within an eighth to a sixteenth inch of the baseline, do that. So now I have this coping saw, whatever. Yeah, I've got this pins board with this waist trimmed, but it's still shy of the baseline. So I, in the past, have clamped this to a vertical holder and gotten a straight bit on a router, set it to, the, uh, to my baseline and routed away between the pins. Works really well. Mm -hmm. You got to be kind of careful as you're getting close to your pins because you don't want to route into your pins. <laughs> yes. And I've done it. I've, I've, you know, I think everybody who's tried it has done this. So this is Will's idea. And it's one of those things where you just want to slap your forehead when you hear it because it's so brilliant. Yeah. He uses a straight bit with a bearing at the shank. So basically, it's a bearing-guided straight bit. The bearing rides on this pin wall that you've already cut. As you clear out the baseline between the pins, it's like it's it's like you have the safety pin, the autopilot of routing, and it works fantastic. And the whole class went through this process, and I've never seen dovetail cases come together as cleanly and precisely. Like, and I'm going to do that it is a duh. every yeah. time I do this. It's, it's brilliant. I'm doing brilliant. it. Works you just have the, to get kind of a – you probably have to get a – it's a short – it's a pretty short straight cutting bit. Well, here's, think, right? here's the thing. That's what I said to Bob because I have like a little quarter inch, you know, um, length bit. And he says, actually, the longer the better because let's say you didn't quite saw your walls perfectly vertically. If the bearing is riding toward at the, at the upper portion, you have a fairly long bit. Not only is this bit clearing out the waist at the bottom, it's also truing up the walls of your pins um, because obviously if you're starting at your scribe line, if you start your saw cut pretty close to your scribe line, even if you're sawing non-vertically, a slightly longer bit is going to clean up that wall. But how long is your are your pins? I mean, your pins are only what, like 
at most three quarters of an inch long. Yeah, so let's say it's a three quarter inch case. In this case, you can get like a half inch, half inch straight bit. Yeah, yeah. drawer well, sides and right. stuff. Maybe it's a quarter inch. You right, know, if your drawer sides aren't that small, but give it a try. It works cool. really awesome. And Bob Van Dyke actually on our website, he posted a little video on there yep. on showing this technique and it if works really well. If you go into the magazine tab on the website. And then look for online extras. It was an online, wasn't an online extra? What was it for? I don't know if it was online extra or if it was look just up, a, I, mm. Look up Bob Van Dyke on our site and you'll see all of his content and you'll find a video for this. It was a, you know, it was a tip video that we did. Yeah. Uh, it's up there. I can, I can put a link uh, in the blog post for this show. Yeah, Will, Will is amazing. I worked with him uh, on a short article on fixing woodworking mistakes and just, he had this trick for fixing miters. I think you're, do you remember it? Oh yeah, it didn't align, and, and it, it it seemed counterintuitive at the time. But boy, did it it worked wonders. Where he, instead of you know planing the end grain of the miter, he just removed material on the inside edge, and it closed up the miter. I think if I'm explaining that correctly. Yeah, or is it when you're like mitering, like doing crown molding on on like three sides, the front and the sides of the case, and you cut that front piece yes. too short, and there's a gap. And you're trying to close what it up. What do you do? But you plane the back side of the molding, and it actually, yeah. it, in essence, lengthens the workpiece effectively. Yeah, it was yeah. it was crazy. I was just like, man. Well, my, you know, speaking of miters, you know what I've always wanted to get? One of those antique miter trimmers. That's like oh, a yes. like a slicer. Like, I, I don't think it's it's probably not a very good idea for a you know like a furniture maker because you. Miters are one of those things that, like, when you cut it, you don't really want to trim it much because it. Right then, it alters the length of your right. You start of your chasing pieces, your but, tail, but they are so cool. And <laughs> you can like, cut meat with it too. Right? Yes, right. I mean, you just—it's got a big lever, and, and this big guillotine comes out and just goes. Whoosh. Actually, uh, Grizzly sells those. They look really? old-fashioned, but you can get a brand new one. They're that not, is cool. Uh, well, my all-time favorite technique of all time relates to your all-time favorite technique of all time for this week, uh, Mike, and it is very simple. It is clean. Your router bits. So there's going to be a video coming out about this um, with relation to our next issue, which is 242. Um, but in a nutshell, try this experiment. If you have a, um, you know, some sort of a profiling bit, an OG, whatever it is, um, that's got a lot of gunk on it, a lot of pitch and sawdust stuck to it, um, make a pass, make a good beefy pass on a piece of cherry and take a look at how burned the cut is and a little bit chippy and just generally awful, fuzzy, you know. Now, go over to your sink, take a brass bristle brush, a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, dish soap, dishwashing detergent, scrub that baby clean, you know, the flat facets clean. Um, and uh, try that cut again, and it's amazing. Like, you, you don't necessarily need to resharpen your bits because those bits are carbide on the ends. Really? Just cleaning yeah. your bit Clean makes it. that big of a I difference. was shocked. I mean, I, I've, I've always cleaned my bits, but... I, I, I never the, do. The, I know you should, but I never do because I think, eh, who cares? Yeah, the closest I've come to cleaning a bit is I've used an X-Acto knife to right. get, the get the behind the back off. of the, uh, like my the dental cutter, hygienist but. scraping the plaque off my <laughs> teeth or something. It will blow your mind how much better the bit cuts. Wow. Forget about sharpening. You probably don't need to sharpen. You just need to clean the darn I bit. I may have thrown away some bits that could have just been yeah. cleaned. It was like, it was, yeah. really, it was like night and day. Cool. I mean, I had never done the experiment until we did the shoot. It's like, whoa. And just regular dish soap, not that super spray bottle bit cleaner no. stuff. Not OxyClean. No, nah, we didn't need that. Uh, just dish what's soap. What's the oven cleaner that everyone used to clean their blades with? Oh, yeah. Off. Well, 
Oven Off? Oven Off. Was it called? Yeah. Easy Off. Easy, easy off, off, I guess. Do they sell Easy Off anymore? Off know. is, is I like think it was banned spray. in California and other uh, states. Well, you're ba- I'm banned in California. <laughs> Everything's banned in California. Uh, air is banned in California. And I, I understand you've cancer. been known to cause cancer in California. I have uh, yes. been known. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, anyhow, uh, Thomas? Yes. Tommy? Did anybody yes. ever call you Tommy when you were growing up? Uh, only, my, only, my, you Tommy? only my brother. Only your brother. Yeah. Or my mother. He's glaring at it's me. It's when the, people call me Thomas that I get scared. Mm. What's that pink piece of paper coming out of your... <laughs> what? what? Uh, to, uh, sorry, Tom? It's in the box behind you. <laughs> uh, I don't... It, my uh, my all-time favorite technique... This is not my all-time favorite. I don't know if I have one, but this it's was... Only for uh, this week. All-time favorite technique this, of all time for this, this week. Oh, gotcha. This is more something... Uh, um, Something that I knew I shouldn't have done, but I did anyway. And I basically, I had, this is a weird situation. I had had gotten a bookcase that uh, was unfinished and it needed a back. Whoa, wait a minute. Did I hear right? The editor of Fine Woodworking Magazine purchased? No, no. A brief, unfinished piece of furniture? It was not purchased. It was inherited. (laughs) <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Okay. But uh, I needed to I needed to make a back for it because the back that came with it was all wonky. So I went, hey, I've never made a double frame of right. panel back for it. So I figured, hey, this is a good chance to do it. And in all Three my styles, earnestness two of, rails, of, of one making, panel. <laughs> in all my earnestness of making the the piece, I've done you know plenty of frame and panel doors, but this I've never had never done before. So I, I put the thing together and I. Everything went everything went fine, and until I was applying the finish, and I realized, oh crap! Oh, can I say crap? Yeah, crap's there? okay. Um, but uh, I didn't pre-finish the panels, and so and what? What season were you? Oh, right now where it's really nice and, and muggy. Oh, so it's going to shrink. Yeah. So I uh, I would recommend pre-finishing uh, panels when you're. What happens if you panel. build that thing in the summer without pre-finishing? You finish it after. What's going to happen in winter? I'm going to see some unfinished areas, my friend. <laughs> As that wood goes, you see tan lines. Tan lines, nice. That's I'm going to get some Mike. very tall books to cover those lines. And so um, just lesson learned, pre-finish those panels. You know, I, um, <laughs> I, I am loath to admit this, but you're reminding me of um, a while back, uh, Jeff Miller for a video workshop series built a be- very pretty cherry bookcase with an ingenious little adjustable shelf system uh, where he had these, you know, two vertical pieces of wood on each side of the shelf uh, that had, like, bird's beaks cut in them, and you could put a little shelf standard in there, wooden shelf standard. And uh, I bought it after the shoot, and I brought it home, and it was in winter, so everything had kind of swelled a bit. And it was, like, late at night. I'm just trying to set the damn thing up in my living room, and like maybe three quarters of the little shelf standards I was able to get in, but the last like two, I just couldn't get in and I'd had enough. I'm like, I'm not taking these back to work and trimming them. I'm sick of this. I want this thing set up so I can put my books in and go to bed. And I brought out the rubber mallet and just popped them in. And uh, when we moved to our new house, I wanted to reposition the shelves and- uh, <laughs> They didn't move. No, nope. that's done. That ship has <laughs> sailed. I beat the crap out of those things. There's your C word again. Um, but I beat the heck out of those things. And uh, just impatience, not good when regarding wood. Just not nah, adjustable not. shelves are over they, overrated they anyway. I, I mean, I don't know how many bookcases I've I've done the extra holes. Yeah. The shelves go in. And you never have, move them. Never. Yeah. Ever. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm planning on making a bed for my my daughter that's going to have some bookshelves in you know built into the headboard, and I've thought about that making them adjustable and i keep thinking man that's a lot of work for something that's never going to move because once she gets all that stuff crammed in there yeah it's it, it's not going to make a difference in the world all right gentlemen well let's head on to our uh, next question of the day it comes from michael not pekovich who writes i have three pieces of wood in my shop that are all badly in wind one is purple heart another is bloodwood and the last is kingwood uh, each are four quarter stock about six inches wide and five feet long. Laying the wood on my bench, each opposite corner sits about three quarters of an inch off the bench. Is there anything I can do with this wood, or is it so warped as to be useless? He's got got some great pulls coming on. (laughs) I sense pens in your future. Um, Yeah, I mean, if if your question is, can you flatten it? Nope. No. Uh, well, you usable? can if you need an eighth-inch board. Yeah. <laughs> is it usable? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that all those woods are nice detail woods. Right. So, you know, by the time you, you get those boards cut up into shorter and narrower pieces, like Tom said, for drawer poles, and um, you're going to have plenty of wood for small details. You'd be able to mill it flat Pe- without pegs. taking off so much material sure. that the pieces are yeah. shorter. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a place for it. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I'm going to do... I got a few more questions that we could touch on. I'm going to go over to Chris, actually. Um, Chris writes, I'm a new woodworker and have been having trouble with my older 14-inch jet bandsaw. I had tried for days to resaw some white oak into quarter-inch thick laminations. I was almost ready to ditch the jet and buy a new, larger saw. Instead, I ordered a wood slicer blade and problem solved. The, quote, drift, end quote, I had before completely disappeared and the wood stayed tight on my fence. It cuts through wood like a hot knife through butter. I wonder how many bandsaw issues are generated by worn out or misappropriated blades. You guys are an incredible resource. My only problem with the show is waiting two weeks for it. So Chris answered his own question. Um, but he did misspell butter. It's butter. Butter. And butter. <laughs> like a hot knife in butter. Um, yeah, no. it's the blade. You had a, you it had is a, the blade. Yeah. You had a worn blade that may have been... Uh, it also may not have been tracking correctly. Who knows? But I wanted to point out there's a really good video on our site, um, and I'll post this one too. Um, it features Asa. It's a video that I produced with him um, on how to change a bandsaw blade. Yeah. And um, here's the skinny on it, three teeth per inch. Um, and then in the video, we show you how to, uh, you know, adjust the tracking, adjust the guides correctly. Um, and, and if you know, and he's using a three eighths blade, right? Uh, did he say? Inch? Well, he didn't say, but I'd say for 14 inch saw, three eighths to yeah. half inch max, yeah. just to make sure you get the right tension on the blade. So, yeah. drift is really uh, a result of a, a blade issue. Yes. Yes. Or or poor tracking. Right. So so yeah. if you get it centered, all those nice things blade, about like over tension your blade and get the drift magnum fence eight thousand. I mean, yeah, yeah, that might help a little bit. Or maybe. your blade tension cool, meter. Right. Yeah. They don't need no. Just get a good, sharp uh, 3TPI blade and install it correctly. Yeah. And and quite frankly, I used, I was telling you guys in our pre-show meeting, um, I wanted to put that video to the test before we released it. And I had purchased um, a four, an old 14-inch um, Rockwell Delta bandsaw from Matt Kenny recently, which used to be Mike's. So this thing was like 30 years old. And um, I basically decided, all right, I'm going to follow the advice given in the video to the letter and see how, how this works out. And that's what I did. I got a new blade. I went home. I had the video on uh, my wife's iPad in the shop and 
within five minutes, I mean, it was just resong. There was the drift did not exist. Yeah. It was so easy, and it just purred too. It just True. the sound. There's there's something about the sound of a of a blade that's tracking right yeah. in a bandsaw. But even cutting curves, I mean, it makes a huge difference in being able to track to a line. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, you answered your own question. Um, anyhow, does he still have to wait two weeks? Does he have to wait? <laughs> yes, he does, because there's no way in heck that I'm going to be able to do this once a week. I, I suspect you guys too. It's just like we, <laughs> I'd love to do one a week, but guess who's got to edit this, come up with the questions, edit the questions, come up with the script, post it online, promote it in an e-letter. You're listening to him. Um, Matt Kenny? Yeah. <laughs> I also think it's an issue, sort of like yeah. when you see that relative that you haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. And it's like, this is great. You know, we should get together more often. And then you do, and it's like, nah, a little too much. That's okay. true. Back off. That was it, so it gives us more time to, acro- to acquire really good questions. Um, it, just, it gives us more time to produce a quality product. Yes. So, yeah, maybe we could do it theoretically once a week, but I, don't, I think the quality would suffer at least a bit. Um, so, and I'm serious. I'm very honest when I say that. Um, but anyhow, I say, you know what? I'm going to do one more bonus question. Uh-oh. Um, we're still under the 60-minute mark, so we got time for a bonus. This is from Dean. Our, he has, uh, Dean has written to us on several occasions, and he writes, I have become a convert to waterlocks, wiping varnish, and enjoy the process right through finishing the finish. The quiet, mindless time provides an opportunity to comp- contemplate the various flaws and mistakes in my joinery and reflect on better ways to execute the next project. Alas, what does one do with the interiors? Is there a convention, expectation, best practice, or other guidance for interior finishing? Accessible places such as the inside of cabinets, I finish with shellac and one or two coats of varnish. I shellac drawers and wax the the exterior. Is this overkill or underachievement? What about mostly hidden spaces such as drawer pockets or undersides of tops and bases? It seems prudent to apply some finish to mitigate differential moisture content. Ooh, look at the big brain on Dean. Now, Dean also (laughs) included, um, I hope this is for real, he said it's a photo of his great-grandfather at work in his shop in Sweden. I want to call him Olaf. Um, it's a really cool black-and-white shot of a dude with a big beard at a bench. It's awesome. So I hope that's for real. Uh, Dean, let us know in the comments section of the blog post for this, uh, this episode. But So what's the deal with like finishing things like you know drawer pockets inside the underside of a tabletop that's never seen? Um, I, I, I finish the underside of tabletops. I don't do as you know, a fine job as I do on the, the show face, but I, in the back of my head, I think I need to do it to, to, to equalize. It's a big wide piece. You know, usually I'm the widest of, piece of warpage, even yeah. though it's attached. It's just sort of an innate fear I have of something going pop in the night. Um, but I interior for tables, I don't do like inside of aprons. I do finish the inside of drawers with shellac and I just use wax on the outside. Like, like Dean does, but again, yeah, I may just be perpetuating an urban myth. Yeah, no, um, I'm with you, Dean. That's pretty much my my routine as well. Like a cabinet, like where the door opens, there's an interior space that's actually still sort of a functional space. Definitely, um, it gets a little more attention. Maybe not quite as heavy of a finish as the outside of the case. Um, and for me, whenever I'm finished the interior of a case, a lot of it has to do with. Uh, the action of the drawers in that to I, to wax the insides of a drawer pocket, I've tried just applying wax to the bare wood, but it really soaks in. It takes up a lot of wax, and it's never quite as smooth. So I think at least a wash coat of shellac, then sand that down. You've sealed the surface. You've locked the fibers in place. 
Um, it keeps the wax from soaking in too much, and it gives you a nice drawer pocket. Now, when we're talking about moisture differential and all that good kind of stuff, I think when you're talking about a tabletop, I think you might have some issues there. For the most part, most pieces of wood and piece of furniture are basically held flat by the construction of the piece, not so much by equalizing the moisture yeah. in and out. But a tabletop is getting exposed to air on the bottom about as much as the top. So I think at least getting a couple coats of finish is a good thing. Yeah. Inside of a case, let's say a chest of drawers, sure, the outside is, is exposed to the air quite a bit. But when all the drawers are closed, you're not getting a whole lot of exposure to the outside air um, as you are, not nearly as much as the outside. So in a sense, I don't think you need to seal the inside quite as much because it's just not in contact as right. much as the outside. Um, so wash, coat of shellac, a little bit of wax. Yeah. That's that's typically all I do. And the, the downside of finishing the interior, it's also the smell that, you know, if you're using it for clothing. Yeah. That varnish smell can oh, sort yeah. of permeate your or permeate your yeah. your, your stuff. I your find it's really important what kind of wax you use too. <laughs> your some, some waxes yes. have a really strong mineral spirit smell. Yeah. And I made the mistake of waxing the interior of a wine glass cabinet and to this day it's Ooh. still smelly and so whenever we have company that's a good it's like tip. I know we have guests coming over because the doors are open and my wife is trying to air out the wine glass cabinet. So that yeah. was a, a hmm. dumb move. Um, that's why I like that uh, that lemon wax that came in the little tin, the Goddard's paste Goddard's wax. wax. That's nice. It's nice. It's a nice lemon scent, and it comes in a cool tin, which is nice. I always like that on the inside of uh, for drawers, parts, and that kind of stuff. That's, that's where you keep your nothing screws after you finish the wax. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. funny because a, fr a friend of mine had purchased a. Um, uh, chest of drawers at a, at a tag sale, and the inside smelled like mothballs. Uh, and they were trying all sorts of ways to get rid of the smell, and they finally called me, and I said, just seal it with shellac. And it worked like a dream. You know, that reminds me, I had a similar thing when my when my the, my uh, grandmother passed away, or no, it was when she moved into like an assisted living place. Uh, I was bequeathed an old armoire. And it was kind of, it was a cool little piece. It wasn't a fantastic piece but it was kind of cool i was living in new york at the time and i had it in a, an apartment that was a really cool apartment that had a lot of space but then i moved to a smaller apartment and i had taken the time because of the mothball smell to do exactly what you said i i kind of gave it a light sanding you know gave it some more shellac and i i fixed a lot of the scratches and dings from over the years new hardware and it was a really nice little piece and as we were um moving into my new place i noticed i i can't fit this thing and it was nice. And so I was going to take it. It was right when those, um, you know, those brick and mortar shops that were around for a little while that would take your stuff and sell it on eBay oh, for yeah. you. All right. This is like 12 years ago. Um, I just, I had the moving truck. I'm like, I'm just going to take it there if I get 50 bucks, you know. And I, it, I was heartbroken getting rid of it, but I didn't have any place to put it. So we loaded it onto the truck and I left it to my buddy to secure it with a rope. Oh, great. That wasn't a good idea. I, I pulled away and immediately heard the crash oh no and that was the end of the oh. wardrobe the armoire whatever you want to call it, it was like oh <laughs> you jerk um but anyway uh it's funny because all this talk about finishing the interior spaces of furniture mike has made fun of me on several occasions in some of my earlier pieces about how many coats of finish i was putting on like drawer pockets <laughs> and like i get the you know the, the insides of aprons and like i, was, oh, I don't know i'm doing the same amount on the outside <laughs> Which was, was so tedious. Well, you were like French polishing the inside of a drawer box or something. I don't know. I was kind of, yeah. 
You had like gold leaf and inlay on the insides. <laughs> Obsessive. Crazy. Yeah. Um, anyhow, listen, uh, we get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store as well as through email. And every week we read a few. But this week we received a review in the iTunes store that was so tough, so in your face, so opinionated that I had to make it the one and only comment for this week's outro. Here it goes from Scrubbykins. I kid you not. Scrubbykins. Quote, Whoever said less sophomoric banter can shove it. I say less woodworking talk and more banter, especially if it involves making fun of Matt. Five plus stars. <laughs> Could this have been written by an anonymous staffer? I think it was written by Matt's wife. Uh, well, a lot of staffers like to make fun of Matt. I, I hear Matt's wife likes to make fun of Matt, so it could have been Matt. Uh, Matt's wife, rather. Um, I just thought that was kind of funny. I was like, dude, like, whoa, uh, scrubby kids. Let's just call, just take it down a peg there, Francis. Come on down here. Um, anyhow, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on July 25th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. you got to have pretty strong drawers. Durable drawers. Strongest drawers ever. I mean, well, no, you got a lot of weight in the drawers, and you don't want to... You know, you know, you don't want to have to wear suspenders. I mean, I, well, yes, you don't want to break the drawer bottom. You don't want to exactly. break the bottom. I mean, I could have bottom problems, and you know, like lights on the floor right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyhow, no, no, bringing it back to reality. So uh, let's clean it up, boys. My fault. I wish I had more drawers. You wish you had fewer. I wish I had fewer. 